Hey everyone, welcome to this week's episode of the Thrive with Asbury Seminary podcast. I'm your host, Heidi E. Wilcox, bringing you conversations with authors, thought leaders, and people just like you who are looking to connect where your passion meets the world's deep needs. Today on the podcast, I got to talk to Jack, Dr. Jackie Perry. She is a North Carolina licensed clinical mental health counselor and supervisor and is currently an assistant professor of counseling at Asbury Seminary. Since 1991, she's had the privilege of counseling hundreds of children, adolescents, and families as they cope with anxiety, depression, grief and loss, and other emotional and behavior challenges. She uses a God-centered, soul-focused, and neuro-informed blend of cognitive behavior therapy, narrative therapy, and internal family systems. She is also a clinical supervisor for counselors who are pursuing licensure in the state of North Carolina. In 2019, she released Heart Cries of Every Teen, Eight Core Desires That Demand Attention. This book was written to help parents and caring adults to understand and address the eight heart core desires that drive and direct much of the best and worst behaviors we see unfolding during the adolescent years of development. In today's conversation, we talk about her calling, her work as a counselor, her book, and how understanding these core desires can help us see hear, value, and delight in our teens and model a curious, compassionate way of looking at the world. Let's listen. Dr. Perry, I'm delighted to get to talk to you today. Thank you so much for taking the time. Thank you. I am so glad to be here on this Monday morning. (laughs) Yes. Well, I want to talk about your new book. Uh, Well, your latest book, Heart Cries of Every Teen, Eight Core Desires That Demand Attention. But before we get into all of that, I want to give our listeners an opportunity to get to know you a little bit. So if you could tell us a little bit about who you are and what you do. Okay. So of course, my name is Jackie Perry, and I'll I'll tell you a little bit about a a, a quick version of my faith story, uh, my background. My parents were immigrants from Columbia, South America. And um, So I was a first generation American, I guess you could say, did not grow up in a Christian home, um, became a Christian in high school, and then kind of grew deeper in my faith in college. And during that process, I began to feel called to the ministry of counseling, thought I was going to be a doc uh, like my dad. And um, the Lord just made it clear that he had a different plan for me. Um, So I went straight from college. I went to Duke University and then went on to a program that is now called Richmond um, in Georgia, in Atlanta, Georgia. And at the time it was um, in partnership with Georgia State, got my master's in community counseling. And two years later was married and counseling adolescents in a variety of settings. Wow. Yeah, that was 1991. So it's been 30 plus years since I've been working with adolescents, emergent adults and families. Yeah. Why counseling and why adolescence specifically? Yeah, I mean, I think one of the things that the Lord made clear to me was I had thought I was going to be a doctor and um, really just didn't love the sciences, ended up seeing a counselor myself and really felt the Lord say or lead me kind of to the fact that he had prepared me to interact with people in a different way, to care for souls, not so much the physical piece, but the emotional piece. And, um, you know, it's, it's neat because assessments made that clear as well as a relationship with a counselor on a college campus. Um, yeah. And yeah. <laughs> yeah. I was going to mention, you know, with your dad being 
a doctor of bodies, kind of, you know, yeah. you take care of the physical bodies, that you're kind of a doctor of people's souls because, I mean, it's all connected body, mind, Absolutely. Spirit, but your work is more focused on the internal, like the soul work. That's right. That's right. So there's definitely a parallel there. Um, and you're right. They're connected, interconnected. Yeah. 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 So was it, was it challenging to start counseling adolescents? Because I'm assuming you said you just got married, so you didn't have adolescents yet. So what was that kind of no, life for I you? basically was still one because I was 24 <laughs> when I graduated with my master's. And here I am counseling, you know, anywhere from 14-year-olds to 17 and 18. And back in those days, I was working in residential treatment with pretty troubled teens um, and also pregnant and parenting teens. So it was tough. It was tough. I also think in some ways I wasn't that far ahead of them. And so I could really extend a lot of compassion. It wasn't that long ago that I had been a, an adolescent yeah. trying to figure out who I was and how to cope. So I think that was helpful. Yeah. So you could kind of maybe, um, in addition to your extensive training, kind of approach them from this is kind of what I, I needed uh, when I was your age, and it's not so far removed that I don't remember what it was that would have really helped me. Yeah, and I think the other thing that, to be quite candid, when I was picking my internships in my grad school, I think I was too intimidated to sit across from adults because I felt so young. <laughs> so I think that's actually how I ended up really uh, kind of diving into this work is out of probably an insecurity to sit across from <laughs> I think I was, you know, counseling people who are in marriage or, you know, much older than me. Yeah. So. Yeah. Then I know. Yeah. Then I never left. We've kind of hinted at this a little bit, but as a counselor, you believe that harmony and wholeness occurs when the will, body, mind, and spirit are integrated. How does this integration happen? Yeah, so I, I really do believe, well, I don't believe, I know uh, from what the neuroscience research as well as just um, scientific research on the human body is telling us that health and wholeness really is connected to a body, a mind, and a spirit that are connected integrated, that there's connectivity. I really do rely on, and I use it in the book in a modified way, Dallas Willard's model of the soul. And it's just a helpful way to sort of see how these different circles and these layers, uh, dimensions of who we are, all affect one another. So when the spirit is healthy, it affects our minds, which is made up of our thoughts and feelings, which affects our body and vice versa. And there's this inward and outward movement that, you know, when we're in our best space, uh, the best you or me, that's happening. Some writers call this flow. So I like to use that word, that there's this inner flow that's moving inward and outward. So mm -hmm. yeah. what is the role of, of God and faith in the counseling room? Because I'm guessing not everybody that you meet with is also a believer. That's right. That's right. Many people that come to counseling, in my case, many of the parents I uh, work with our our count our Christians, but their kids are are not really walking with the Lord. And also, sometimes I see families that that just aren't interested in spiritual things across the board. But um, the wonderful thing about being a believer is the Holy Spirit resides in in us and works in and through us. And so, I don't have to talk about Christ for a client, a kid, a family to experience Christ in and through me. One of the things I talk about in training counselors is just 
the gaze of the father and how our nonverbals and our presence and our safety and our ability to see a client physically and emotionally really reflects the heartbeat of our father. If we, if we are rooted in Christ and we are experiencing his gaze in our own time with him. So it's pretty a powerful um, place to be. Um, so it's a privilege. Yeah. I've been on a counseling journey for, I can't remember if it's this month or next month, it'll be a year. And I really have just felt, we don't talk about faith a lot in the sessions, um, but I really have just felt like it's sacred space during that time. Yes. I often use that term as well, Heidi. Yeah. It's yeah. a good space. Yeah. It is a good space. Um, as you, as you work with families, um, children, adolescents, you know, we talked about the integration process, how I'm like, I want to get this done. Right. You know, I've said I've been on this journey for a year and it's been a good journey and I'm starting to see the, the results of the hard work. I feel like for me, it's been symbolic that I'm seeing some of the good fruits of that work as we're entering into spring in Kentucky. And I'm like, oh, we've been in this wintering and now things are are blossoming a little bit in, in my spirit. I don't think there's anything really different, you know, that's beautiful. Um, yeah. yeah. Well um, how do you know, how do you know when that's happening for your, for your clients? And is there a, like a time that you're like, Oh, if people go to counseling, do the work, which I've learned is sometimes it's just showing up because I want to work hard at everything. So I want to make that clear for like people that is not like always like, Oh, I have to read this and do my homework. Cause I thought that's what it was. That was one of the things I had to work through. Um, but yeah, how do you know if the process is working? Is there a, like a time time frame? Uh, there's not a time frame. That's a good <laughs> question. There's not a time frame. In fact, I uh, you know I have some people that are young adults that I've seen since they were 13, and they're still doing check-ins, and uh -huh. and other people that you know we complete our work in six to 12 se sessions. But I think I want to lean into something that you're talking about that's really important. Is most people who are coming into counseling are either experiencing some kind of struggle internally, or Many times in my case, um, their parents are bringing them in because there's some behavioral problems. Mm -hmm. and that's the outside, right? And so one of the things that we do, I do in my work is try to make connections between what's ex what a person is experiencing internally. And when I'm talking about that, Heidi, I'm talking about what are their thoughts and what are their feelings? What are, what are even just what's the state of their spiritual life? Um, and, and a lot of times adolescents aren't in touch with that, right? And a lot that's of times... Hard. Yeah, a lot of times their parents aren't in touch with what I call this inner space. It's why I wrote the book. What mm -hmm. we're a bit more focused on in adolescence is oftentimes their behavior. Are you doing what you're supposed to do? And I believe those are the hooks. So mm -hmm. how I know I'm making progress with a teen and or a family is we're moving beyond just the behavior and we're how we're exploring and hopefully willingly, how does this connect with what I'm actually feeling and experiencing? What are my longings? What are my thoughts? And I know we'll talk about this in a little bit. How have those been affected by my wounds? Mm. Places of pain mm -hmm. in the past. So, so maybe the distortions that I have in my thinking that have affected my feelings that are affecting what I do. And so when a client, when a teenager, a young adult allows me to move inward to that space and becomes vulnerable, I know this is this is work because it means they're trusting me and they're lifting up some some barriers mm -hmm. of protection. 
So that's one big clue. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. You mentioned this a little bit in what you said, but, um, and we'll, you're leading us right into your book, which is great. You're making my job super easy. <laughs> um, but you mentioned understanding the what's happening on the inside as we understand the behaviors. Because you said that teens, parents bring their teens, young adults in because of certain behaviors. Why is it so important that we understand what's behind the behavior? Because I think, um, sadly, um, many adults, many parents, and I, and I you know, I've raised kids as well. And my kids are all out of their teen years, praise the Lord. (laughs) But, you know, we can end up being what are called behaviorists. Our kids are learning to behave in a certain way. And God has really given parents the opportunity to shape a heart, to really play a role in shaping a heart. And so when parents get lost in do this and do that, and they may have the most obedient children whose hearts are not, you know, known by their parents and really maybe not even alive in some ways. So, uh, and that's often true with maybe even oldest children or youngest children who might be more conformists. And then that middle child is like, wow, I see a lot of kids. Um, Yeah, they're not willing to like fall into behaviorism, but that's really what it can become is behaviorism. And that's not uh, the transformation that God invites us to be a part of with, with our kids. Yeah. And you definitely talk about that in your book, Heart Cries of Every Teen, that released in 2019. Why was then the right time to write that book? Well, I won't go into the, the, the many pits of despair that I found myself in, in writing this book, but anybody out there who's written a book knows it is not as easy as one believes it is uh-huh. when one uh-huh. begins this journey. So the journey really started probably about 10 years before the book was released. And it started because I was doing lots and lots of speaking engagements, Heidi, and I kept hearing parents say, I wish you would write a book on this. So I ended up at a writer's conference and met with an agent, shared some handouts with him, and he he took me on based on that. Um, that was even five to seven years before the book. And then writing the book uh, was, was a long journey. One I would have thrown aside if I didn't feel like it was very important. There are books out there that talk about the desires of the heart. There are many good books that talk about that. I couldn't find any that really spoke to the adolescent heart because what's happening in adolescence is happening alongside some of the biggest developmental changes that are going on in their lives. And that is significant because of the way it impacts the heart. So that's, I felt it was serious. I felt like um, God had really given me an opportunity and um, you know, many people ask me, how'd you get it done? And I, and I, I don't say this lightly. It was really out of obedience to, to what I felt like the Lord wanted me to do. It was not a joy journey. <laughs> it wasn't. I also am an extrovert. Maybe you can tell that, but I'm an extrovert. And, and a book requires you to sit alone in a room for hours and hours, days upon days upon weeks. And mm-hmm. yeah, that was hard for this kid, this person, <laughs> woman. <laughs> I I've interviewed a lot of authors and I think it I think it definitely is a process and a long journey. Long journey. <laughs> Get it out there. Um so you released it in 2019. Well just before the pandemic which we of course had no idea what was going to happen. Right. So what was that like to have just released a book to be wanting to go on book tours to talk about yeah, it? Yeah, so the timing of the book was tough. The 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 publishers really wanted me to release it that winter. 
I was less than a year from graduating with my PhD, was really wanting to wait until, for, probably for vain reasons, until I could put that on there, but also well, for sure. come up for air and finish finish my dissertation. Uh, so so we sort of decided that we it would be released. It was released late November. It's just not a good time to go on a tour when we're talking about the Christmas months. So uh, I think I had a release party in late January, early February, and then some personal things happened in my extended family. And so anyways, we decided to go ahead and like start meeting at different people and, and traveling uh, in March and, and moving into the summer. Uh, that all got tabled. <laughs> because So, you know, I never, I never did go on a book tour. Uh, I never... So it's it's a funny thing. It does feel like in some ways it was just released because I'm really now just coming up for air and being able to kind of go, oh, yeah, I probably should remember that I had. <laughs> it was discouraging at the same time. Truly, it allowed me to be able to dig in and finish my Ph.D. Yeah, I had to sort of go, OK, well, now it's clear I can just focus 100 percent on finishing. Yeah. Do you have any uh, tours, events, speaking things, or is that kind of still they, on hold? No, it's a not. Bit yeah, it's not on hold. I, I don't know that I'm seeking them as much as they've just come to me. I've spoke to parent groups often. I'm speaking this week and next week to local places, um, camps, um, mother-daughter camps kinds of things. So they've just come from different interactions I've had with one or two people who connect me. Um, because I'm a professor now and I still carry a clinical load, it's tough for me to put tons of energy into definitely <laughs> sneaking these engagements. But I, t I tell you, it's what I love to do. I love getting up in front of a group of people who work with youth or parents and share these kinds of principles. Yeah, I read on your website that you that you sometimes feel like you're a teacher trapped in a counselor's body. <laughs> yes, and my my clients who are teenagers would say that. I tend to be a pretty smart group of kids, and so they're pretty open to me uh, offering some education on neuroscience and like why this is so hard or why that was, you know, a struggle. Um, I'm also a. Uh, chronic reader. I'm always, always reading. And so when you read a lot of facts, you love sharing those facts. So that comes into yeah, teaching. Yeah, yeah, definitely. Talking about the human heart, how do you define the the human heart? What does that mean? Yeah. So again, using, uh, you know, if the listeners look at Dallas Willard's model of the soul, he has these concentric circles and he talks about the soul sort of integrating these these dimensions. And on the outside, we have this relational self and then this physical body or um, the, which would include our organs and, you know, all that we're feeling. And then that would be sort of, according to scripture, I believe the outer person. It's what I can see when I'm interacting with it, with a client, with a kid, with my, my own kids is I can see, I can see how they're relating to me and I can see their physical body. And that contrasts with this inner person, which is much more hidden, right? It's, it's um, the, the mind, which is made up of thoughts and feelings. So if you think about it, you can't have a thought without a feeling. You can't have a feeling without a thought. So those are really married together in the mind. And then deep in the center place of the heart is spirit. And that is more than just what maybe some people would think is like this spirit, this intangible thing within us. It's also um, will 
consciousness, morality. It's this deep place that God's word talks about where we make our decisions, where it's out of this place. It's almost like this core within everybody. So everybody has a spirit. Everybody is a spirit. Um, so, so that center place, the heart is made up of both mind and spirit. Mm-hmm. Thoughts, feelings, and kind of this will or intentionality or morality. Mm-hmm. And again, that if you think about it, that's hidden. I cannot see that in my own kids. I cannot see that in my clients. And it's the place we most protect. We don't let people see that easily. No, no, we don't. Everybody has one, but a teenager's heart is more, I would say, maybe more complex than the rest of us. Do you think that's fair? <laughs> It may be more complex and maybe in some ways more simplistic too. And it, it is, I think it's both. And I think um, while there, I think their desire and maybe their belief is that they're more sophisticated and protecting it. They're not as sophisticated as we can get as we get older. We can really, really build intricate walls. And because of um, the age of teenagers, they have built walls because they've had to. We all have to. Building walls is part of surviving. Um, they're not as complex as they think they are. Um, and so they haven't mastered the, the ability to hide them in their nonverbals and things like that. So it's both and. It is complex. I think what is I think what makes it difficult to access is big behaviors and big emotions that come out that block us from being able to see the heart. We just see the behaviors and we see these intense emotions, the rudeness, the drama, um, the anxiety, maybe. We don't understand what lies beneath that. And so I think there's more, um, there's just these intense behaviors and emotions. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, for sure. Um, so next, I want to, if it's okay with you, I'd love to talk through the eight core desires. And then we can talk about um, the the wounding that happens that kind of cause that can cause some of the the behavior you know the other behaviors but we can get to the what is actually wanted and needed um, yeah first, and then we can talk about that absolutely so, okay awesome okay. So if you could, um uh you can lead us through i can lead us through we can just kind of free flow it through. I've, got a, I've got the list right in front of me i should know them by heart i do but i often <laughs> like on the spot i'm like oh what's the eighth one <laughs> i've been teaching this so long but the first one is hear me and you know this is a huge one for teenagers and i often will have teenagers i have like a handout i use with all of these just listed on there and they're kind of like pictures of buckets and i often ask teenagers if you had to only pick one or two of these and you couldn't get the rest of these met the rest of your life, which ones would you pick? And Hear Me is often, if not always, chosen. It's why the book starts with, or this section of the book starts with Hear Me. We were created by a God who expresses himself and gave us the ability and the desire to express. And so uh, that lives inside of every human being. And um you know, when we grow up, we learn what people want to hear and what they don't want to hear. Um, we learn how to find ways to express, and it is not always verbal. It is often um, in healthy ways, through artistic means, through performance, through singing, through poems, through writing. It's also through pretty destructive behavior. You know, writing on my skin, for example, um, is a way that teens might um choose to express themselves so that somebody will hear them. It's important to be heard. And all all of the desires um, 
are linked to ultimately this, this longing will not be satisfied apart from other people and apart from Christ himself. And that is God's desire and his plan for us. Um, yet we live in a culture that I see many teens in the last 30 years who, who really believe the, the need to need, the have to, have, having to need people means you're needy. Oh. Yeah. And so they want to believe that they don't need anybody. That they, oh, that know, they're self-sufficient. Exactly. That they're self-sufficient. And so often when I take them through, not just God's plan, because some kids don't care, but really even the, the incredible research on our neurobiology, we are who we are. 100% because of relationships. Like our genetics come from our, you know, biology and our, you know, our parents. But who you are today, Heidi, and who I am today has been co-authored in relationships. And so, and, and how to change that happens in relationships. It doesn't happen with me sitting in a room and going, it means I work it out with other people <laughs> in therapy, <laughs> friendships, you know, community, and, and, and in my relationship with Christ as well. Yeah. Yeah. Really, yeah, Definitely. Nice. So that's a huge one is just this longing to be, to be heard and, and how, how we will as teenagers um, do what we need to do to get hurt behaviorally yeah. and verbally, you know? Yeah, definitely. Definitely. Related to that is the next one, which is notice me. Um, notice me is sort of like um, see me is another way of saying it uh, in, in attachment theories, we talk about the four S's. Dan Siegel came up with these and they're really catchy. And it's just that every human from the moment they come into the world wants safety to be seen. They want to be soothed and they want to be secure. So being noticed is about being seen. Do you see me? And it's not just physical see me. It's also emotional see me. Um, And again, we learn early if you're willing to see all of me, not just my physical self, but my emotional self, and I'll do what I need to do to be seen. So destructive behaviors that teenagers might be doing might be, you know, pushing people down just so that they can be seen. Um, healthy behaviors might be similar in that they're um, competing. You know, they're on a stage. They're the class clown. Um, it's related to hear me, but it's also just like, um, you know, will you pick me? Will you mm-hmm. choose me? Um I often will talk about just sort of like the the longing to be special, the longing to be picked and set apart, and and that God really says that about us um, as His children. That lives out in the adolescent world all the time. Mm-hmm. You're just like, he likes me, or she likes me, or the teacher uh-huh. likes me. So it's like notice me. Yeah. Yeah. Um, you need to move on. Oh yeah, for sure. Okay, affirm me uh, is probably the second top uh, longing that I see circled when I give this to teenagers, and this is just the the feeling of being validated, the experience of just there's something good and worthy about you, about me, um, and and I'm hearing it. And so teenagers will do all kinds of things to to get that again from you know, being perfectionistic and making sure that they get straight A's to the other extreme to destroying just so there's there's something that could be affirmed about that. Uh I worked with a kid years ago. He he may be mentioned in the book, but just he was doing all kinds of uh, kind of little bomb making, like little explosives. And he felt so um, affirmed even when he was arrested because 
people were commenting yes. on his designs. So he was using these skills in a, in a negative way. But but kids really do want to be valued. You know, I often hear kids say, my parents only say things that I'm doing wrong instead of saying things that I'm doing right. And it could be the little things from thanks for showing up, son or daughter. Uh, but but kids really long to be validated. It makes us feel worthy. And, and that longing, again, is met in community as well as in Christ. Christ says that clearly, um, how much we're valued. And that our worth really comes from being made in his image. Yes. Yes, definitely. Yeah. So the other big one is befriend me. And this is just the the longing to be included, the longing to be in relationship with other people, and the immense pain that adolescents and young adults go through when there's a sense of isolation and disconnection in these Mm -hmm. friendships or rejection and abandonment. And, you know, I think we all know this is a big area where children and adolescents have suffered in the pandemic is the relationships they have not been face to face. And there's nothing like hanging out, you know, and watching a movie with your friends or just talking. Um, It doesn't compare to texting, you know, it's just on a whole nother level. And so this, just this opportunity or this desire, excuse me, to be, to be a part of a group or community, it's in us. Um, And God invites us to that. And again, a lot of Kids will often say, I don't really care. I don't need anybody. And they'll use maybe expletives in, in talking about that. Um, and, and I'll remind them that just like they need food and water and shelter and clothing as part of their survival needs, they need people. And they don't need to have tons of people. You know, introverts don't need to have 20 friends, but they do need to have one or two. Right. They just don't. Extroverts think something's wrong with them sometimes when they only have one or two friends. Um, Right. You know, there definitely are those personality types that play into how these look, but we all need some kind of a community. Yeah. I'm an introvert. If I had 20 friends, I would, I would literally probably go hide (laughs) 20 close. You know what I mean? Then I'm like, oh, I'm going to have to hang out with all of you. Yeah. How am I going to do that? How am I going to do that? I want to stop and say one thing, too. I think it's important for those people who are listening that are parents to realize that these needs in adolescence really need to be met both in the home and outside of the home. And so, you know, for for families that are homeschooling, particularly during the pandemic, many, many began to do that and many are continuing that for for good reason. it's important to be creative and think of ways that our, our teenagers can be finding these. And that has a lot to do with identity development. It is really important that they begin to practice relational skills and pre- practice taking risks, healthy risks, so that they can understand how to create social emotional relationships apart from sisters, brothers, mom and dad, whoever's at home. Um, so I, I want to caution parents in saying it is Tempting to say or look at these this list and go, I need to do all of these. No, know that they're there. You cannot do all of them. God did not want you to do all of them. You do, you're not supposed to replace them either. It's more, uh, how can you encourage your kid to take healthy risks and find these and to comfort them when they're experiencing the pain that they will experience when these aren't met? Um, mm-hmm. And that is part of growing up and also experiencing Christ potentially in the midst of, of their pain. So. Moving on from there, the last four, allow me. And this has a lot to do, Heidi, with competence. Uh, Kids, especially older adolescents, really want to be able to show people what they can do. And uh, I I speak gently, 
but firmly to those parents who want to do everything for their kids. Uh-huh. It's really important for kids as they get old, older, as they're growing up to begin to develop a sense of, I can do this. And when we rob them of the daily chores or responsibilities in their home, or even for crying out loud, writing a paper and letting them sort of learn how to do that in the messy process of, you know, getting negative feedback and not rescuing them. We actually enhance their sense of competence. Um, And they, they experience that in, you know, jobs, they, a part-time job, they experience like, oh my gosh, my boss said, and it'll never compare to things you've said their whole lives because it's not you, you know, the parent. Mm -hmm. So, so to begin to find ways um, to experience that sense of competency. And the, 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 the flip side of that is when kids are feeling failure and they're feeling like, especially in a school setting, they don't feel academically competent. And, mm-hmm. and some kids don't. And some kids are not going to you know, measure up academically or cognitively to some of their peers. But to know that there are many ways of experiencing competency from, you know, repairing a, a a bike or mowing lawns or running a small business. Or, you know, I I often say to my friends who still have teenagers, it doesn't matter what your kids starts. If they come to our door and they're starting a business or if we can do it, we're going to, we're going to say yes, because I just feel we all need to be affirming the kids' competence and that they can do these things. It does so much for self-esteem. So the next one is touch me. And this is an interesting one, especially in where we are in culture with with regard to just um, gender revolution, if you can call it this. But touch me is a huge one for uh, so for for neurological development. We all need touch, and a lot of people don't realize actually our our touch needs increase during our adolescent years. Um, we need them more than ever, and yet it seems to couple the time that parents are pulling away. I've had many dads uh, ask me, "How can I?" touch my daughter appropriately when you know she's moving through adolescence and she's becoming a young woman that doesn't feel comfortable with her sitting on my lap and but yet I know she needs touch and those those are good questions and good ways to uh, good good things to consider but our, our adolescents do need touch and if you've ever hung out at a youth group or in a high school or at a game there is no space between these kids they are on top of each other they are slapping each other they are snuggling they are uh, there's there's their skin to skin contact and that is is because of this need they're not always it's not intention it's not conscious I mean it's not like they're thinking I need touch um, but they're living it out most of the time I will say this too. We all have sort of a barometer. Some people don't like a lot of touch. Some of that has to do with their own personal story and maybe some wounds, but some of it is just, you know, their personality. But we do need touch to to thrive. So we do see just this increase in even sexual touch that happens during adolescence. And sometimes that is simply because they're, you know, just longing for touch, particularly touch-deprived kids. So something to think about. And and parents can often uh, to be blunt, freak out about some of the touch that they see. And I think it, it is a, an entry point, a point of entry for great conversations with our kids about these needs and, and good ways to get them met and maybe some not so great ways to get those met. <laughs> um, yes. Yeah. The next one is protect me. And this has to do with that S of safety and just mm-hmm. uh, will you not just physically protect me, but will you emotionally, am I safe with you? And and this is one of the reasons we often see adolescents in maybe some destructive relationships 
because they feel safety there, actually. They feel actually emotionally seen and they can disregard some of the other things that are going on because for the first time, perhaps, they feel like this person actually knows that that inner space of the heart. Mm -hmm. Um, Our kids are longing for people who are emotionally and physically uh, safe and and you can see the wounds in any adolescent who's, you know, been around long enough. Uh, they, they have been wounded when people have betrayed them. They've taken something that they've shared and they've you know, gone out and shared it with other people and violated their trust. So uh, longing to be safe with parents and in community, uh, as well as we know that God offers uh, the ultimate safety uh, in a relationship with him. Mm-hmm. And the last one is remember me. And this again is more older teens. It's just as teenagers begin to see, uh, honestly, death and, and, and the end of life begin to happen. And, and many teenagers do see that both in their peers, as well as grandparents, great grandparents, uncles, aunts um, dying. They start to, to think about some existential questions like, what will people remember me for? What yes. this this is you know sometimes related to calling and 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 will you remember me and what impact will I leave on this earth and and so that that last one often doesn't happen until college but definitely um, depending on the circumstances and I share a couple stories in my community that happened that really caused those questions to happen. There's a lot of pain in that. And so even looking at their friendships and sort of going, how am I going to be remembered? Or will you even remember me? Do you even care about me? Mm -hmm. Uh, Especially if you've been, if they've been to a funeral and they hear the words that are said, they're huge. Those are huge. So those are, those are eight. And I think it's helpful to sort of if all if all we had as youth workers or parents who work with teens and, and, and emergent adults is is these eight on a sticky or in our mind, that when we have these tough moments with our kids or, or with the youth and we're trying to make sense of them, that we can sort of run down the list, list in our head and go, what could be the driver of this behavior? What mm-hmm. what's underneath this? And it may not just be one of these. It may be several. Um, not to say I would never say I think you did that because you just wanted to be heard. Right. Right. <laughs> not what I'm saying, but it's helpful for me to to think about what could it be so that I can curiously begin to engage and compassionately begin to just sort of listen to the just story and help them explore. Could it be that this is yeah. longed for? Yeah. You know. Yeah. Definitely. Because it's always, it helps uh, anyone working with teens or interacting with other human beings, I think, be more empathetic if you can kind of be like, you might be behaving this way because you want to be heard. You want to be valued. You like, this is your motivating force. And if I can, if I can come alongside you and be like, okay, I see you, you know? Yes. And I think what you're saying, which is so important is we don't have to validate the method or the behavior, but we certainly can validate these longings in a kid's yeah. heart. We can definitely say, I, I, you will always need to be affirmed. And I get that. You will always need to and long to be seen. And that's important. But maybe there's a better way. Maybe there's yeah. a better way. You know? Yeah. Or, yeah. or the pros and cons or the costs and benefits of the way that you're trying to get seen in your peer group yeah. or what have you. And those conversations are powerful conversations for kids to have with an adult 
because their peers aren't asking them those things <laughs> at all. They're in it with them. Yeah. How you talked about this a little bit, but how is the isolation of COVID and, you know, doing school in the virtual classroom and not being able to engage in outside events? How has that affected teens specifically? And then how can how can we as parents help? How can can we as friends of people with children, how can we also help? Yeah, I mean, that's a, a big question and I, I don't have a pretty answer for it. I think my pretty answer and, and realize I'm working, you know, when I answer this question, I'm talking about kids I see in counseling. So this right. population are already in counseling, but I would say I've never seen um, as much um, of a dip in dark depression that I've seen in the last two years. It's frankly been quite exhausting for, for we as clinicians. Um, I, our, my my clients have really battled depression and that makes sense. I can validate that. This is not how it was supposed to be. And even with masks on, which again, I affirm and, and understand why we've needed to do that. Um, it's not the same. We're, we're, our implicit communication, which just means the nonverbals that are being shared back and forth between people rely on a full face. <laughs> and, totally. It really does. Uh, so, so I have seen a dip in depression. And I think that, you know, as caring adults, now that we're coming out of a lot of the thick of it anyways, I think we, we can, number one, validate it. And number one, begin to mobilize and help kids find community and connection, whether it's extracurricular activities, spending time. You know, I've often said to kids, if you can go to Starbucks or the library or a public place to do your homework these days, and you actually can be productive, do that. You need to be around other bodies and you don't always have to be connecting with them, but there is a buoying up that comes in that. So I can't find friends for my kids, but I can create opportunities for them to find friends. I can invite them into my home. I can host things. I can encourage them to, to participate. I can allow them, even if they don't deserve it, some social outings because they need them and they need yes. beyond me, <laughs> you know, and that's important. That's important. Yeah. As we talk about some of the, the wounds that happen in spite of parents' best efforts, you know, I think I'm not sure that any kid can grow up without wounds, even from their parents who have the right. best intentions. How do these, why does it seem like that some kids pursue desires even in their wounding in healthy ways and then some kids are not? Because with that question, I'm kind of thinking of the parent who's like, I have done everything I know to do. Like I have tried to do all these things and my kid's behavior is still this way or they're still going down a path that is leading to destruction of some kind. Yeah. And I, I would say, you know, you're right. There are no perfect parents. And in fact, that's not the goal. I think that we robbed kids from being able to sort of uh, – be propelled or co compelled to the foot of the cross when when we uh, when we when we try to be the in all end all. But I would say you're not the only person in their lives, and wounds do really um, great damage in our kids. And so uh, a, a mom or a dad who's doing an amazing job may be married or have been in partnership, or you know this this kid may have been be around a teacher, a grandparent a stepdad, a stepmom that really didn't do it well. And um, it's amazing to me how much these wounds really can shape their drive to find them these needs somewhere else because of, or to shut down, to try to shut down. Well, then I'll, I'll never try to be heard. I'm not going to self-express because people don't want to hear me. Right. 
Yeah. Right. Yeah. So it plays a huge part. And I, and I think it's helpful to understand, you know, there's great examples in the book, I think of, of, of kids I've worked with that, for example, um, you know, didn't feel like people really heard them at home or in their key attachment figures, parents or step parents. And so finding those people and being desperate to be heard in maybe some healthy ways, but also some healthy ways becomes their MO. They're just going to do that. But the flip side can happen too, just as much. It's like, okay, well, I guess I'm not supposed to speak. I guess nobody cares about me, but I'm going to make sure I hear everybody else. And these are the kids that are like the best listeners, but they never feel like they're heard. And there's a lot of these sweet kids out there. <laughs> I know some. Yes. Yeah. And they they just don't even know how to open up their heart because it actually takes risk taking to do that. But they'll let other people and they're really amazing at doing that. And so it, it begins, it, it, it becomes difficult to give and take. And so, you know, our, our counseling relationship becomes corrective in that way. And then mm-hmm. they're practicing yeah. doing that with, yeah. with me. But I do think, um, these, these wounds, I, I talk in the book about the four categories of wound, humiliation, criticism, rejection, abandonment, betrayal, two of those go together. Um, and every kid by the time they're 12 for even younger is experienced these wounds and how, how they cope with them is not formulaic. You know, it doesn't always make sense how one kid can experience maybe a betrayal of sorts and seem to be moving through it fine and and doesn't build up these huge walls or act out in in a way to desperately satisfy these needs where another kid does and and that's the the complexities of being humans and being so uniquely different um, from one another so but it is important for parents to understand for people who work with kids to understand that that wounds play a role and so knowing the narrative or leaning into the narrative or the story um, in a safe way to be able to help them, not so much you, but help them put the pieces together, this pain and how it affects my desires is really important for me to going back to what you said, to, to do the work, to do yeah, to yeah. process through it. Because I think what you're saying is it's important to learn how to move through the That's experience right. and all the emotions so that it can go back to being integrated That's into, right. into all of you. Instead of saying, I shouldn't need these. I mean, I remember right. a time in my life where I, 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 some of these needs, I was just like, I shouldn't need these from other people because I have Christ and he promises to satisfy all of these. And I remember saying this to a counselor many years ago and he was like, you have the gospel very wrong. <laughs> and he was like, yes, Christ perfectly satisfies some of these desires you aren't getting met, but he really satisfies them in relationship with other human beings. That's where you'll experience him in a different way and in a flesh, you know, flesh yes. way, embodied yes. way. So, um, so yeah, it's, a, yeah. it's really important. Yeah. Well, I have one more question that we ask everybody on the show. Um, but before I do that, is there anything else that you want to mention that I didn't know to ask? I don't think so. I feel like I, 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 I'm often accused of being a fire hydrant with just like spitting out information. So I hope oh, I, was I love it. Fire hydrant and sharing these things I'm pretty passionate about. I think we covered the basics. Oh, well, actually, I wanna... actually, I thought of one thing. Sorry. Oh, yeah, go ahead. I, I think, and I touch on this uh, in the book, two things, actually. One is it's important to know 
too, that our sin nature, our kids' sin nature plays a role in these desires being warped and, and really feeling like they, that they deserve and de, de, can de, demand these. And, and deserve, I mean, in a like entitlement way, not in a human deserving way. Right. And so that's it, important to remember how much that can warp this process. And the other thing is, boy, I've heard this so many times when I speak on, on this on this topic and, and from people who've read the book is they've said, I need these things. And you're saying, I need to give these to my kids. And I said, yes, begin with you because you need to be able to have a community as a parent, as a, as a worker with kids, you know, you need to have a community and more importantly, you need to have a rooted relationship with Christ so that you're being filled so that you can fill and you'll never be fully full and they'll never be fully full. But I, I love when parents say that, even though they're often saying it with weariness because they're having an aha Oh, mm-hmm. maybe when I'm sitting there doing the dishes and I'm feeling angry and irritable, maybe I need to explore what longings in me aren't being met. Yes. And maybe I'm feeling completely unseen or unvalidated or affirmed or unincluded, you know, not included. Mm-hmm. Maybe that's where I need to do some exploring and maybe some work, both in my relationship with Christ as well as community. So. Yes. For sure. That's one of the things that I'm learning to do is explore the why behind what I'm feeling with curiosity instead of, I feel angry. I am not allowed to feel, you know, I'm not allowed to feel this way, but like, hmm, what is it trying to tell me? Yes. You know, you have a good counselor. (laughs) Curiosity and compassion. We do need to like kind of, yeah, be curious about what's going on. Yeah. Yeah, for sure. Well, I would we'll link to your book in the show notes and I would definitely I read your book before our conversation. I would definitely encourage anyone with kids, working with kids. If you don't have kids, think you might want kids. Um, <laughs> pretty much everyone to pick up a copy of your book. So we'll link that in the show notes. Um, yeah. But we do have one question that we ask everyone because the show is called the Thrive with Asbury Seminary podcast. What is one practice that is helping you thrive in your life right now? Yeah, this is a, it's not a new practice, but it's probably six months old. I, I did it this morning. I, I start out my morning very, very slow. And I actually on the other side of this computer I'm sitting on is a mat and um, a mirror. And I have been meditating. And sometimes that will lead right into a 15 or 20 minute yoga practice. But I have really been sitting still and being quiet and centering Um integrating centering prayer, but sometimes literally it is just closing my eyes or staring at a spot on the wall and quieting my soul before, before any day, but before a busy day, definitely Monday through Friday. It's an, it's just a non-negotiable for me. Yeah. That has helped me thrive. Uh, (laughs) Yeah, for sure. Yeah. That's beautiful. Well, thank you so much, Dr. Perry, for sharing today. I've really enjoyed our conversation and can't thank you enough for being on the podcast. Thank you. It's great to be here. Hey, everyone. Thank you so much for joining me for today's conversation with Dr. Jackie Perry. I hope you found it as helpful as I did. Although I'm not a teenager, taking a look at these eight core desires have helped me see my own life a little more clearly so that hopefully I can model better behavior to those who are coming behind me. And of course, if you see Dr. Perry or know her, be sure to tell her thanks so much for being on the podcast today and be sure to pick up a copy of her book, Heart Cries of Every Teen, Eight Core Desires That Demand Attention. We've linked it in the show notes so you shouldn't have any trouble finding it at all. 
So as always, thank you so much for joining us today. And you can follow us in all the places on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram at, at Asbury Seminary. Until next time, I hope you'll go do something that helps you thrive.